How many of you uh, enjoy do-it-yourself kind of projects around the house? I know Nancy does. How many others? About three of you? There's, there's about a third of us, maybe a fourth. Um, I'm not always good at things. Uh, I'm not a particularly crafty person, but I don't mind doing certain projects around the house. And um, But I, I don't really have a lot of experience doing them uh, other than pushing a lawnmower growing up. And so over the years, I've had to learn some things. And I learned how to trim some hedges, which sounds easy enough. But, you know, trim hedges and to do it well, you, you know, there's certain things you need to do, starting from the bottom, and you shave them up. And little things like that. And I, I watch uh, gardeners at work, and I've asked questions, and I've tried to learn from them. There are times uh, going to... Um, uh, repair drywall um, in my house or in my mother's house and uh, being taught how to, to take and push the drywall screws just so, so they're not too far deep and they can't be protruding out and, and then how to tape over the drywall seams and the mud and things that I've been taught and I'm so grateful for having been taught how to do that, even caulking a bathtub or a shower uh, so that it doesn't leak anymore. Uh, my brother and I, uh, with the help of a, a cousin, we uh, went to my mother's house and for the very first time a couple of years ago, we, we built a shed for her in her backyard, but we had to build uh, a foundation for it first, and it's amazing what you can learn on YouTube. <laughs> and so we did it, and it's still standing two years later, even through tornadoes and all sorts of things. It's amazing. Yes. But there's one thing, many things, many things, really, but one thing that stands out that I've never been able to learn. When Owen, my firstborn, came along and it was time for his first haircut. I told Susan, I said, I can do that. It'll save us some money. Because I grew up, my mom took me to a friend's house, and I was used to kind of getting haircuts in a home setting. And so no problem. So I got the scissors out and started clipping, clipping. And I stepped back, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> I said, so did you come here? She says, ooh. <laughs> so we let it grow out, right? That's a good thing about a bad haircut. It usually grows out, and you can fix it. So the second time your haircut came along, I said, I can do it. I, I can do it. I don't know. Susan said, I, I can do it. Let me. Okay. So I did it. And she saw it. One word is all that was needed. Nope. <laughs> you know how many times I've cut hair since then? <laughs> Zero. No times. What I have learned in my life, and your hair looks so much better now because what I have learned in my life is that when we learn, when we grow in things, is that we usually have a teacher and a guide, right? People who come beside us. It could be videos on YouTube. But to learn something and to do it well... It's so important that we have somebody show us and teach us generally. We watch, we learn, we practice, and over time we begin to do, and in time we begin to do competently. People need other people as a model and a guide. We know this. Children need parents to, to teach them how to eat properly with a fork or how to use manners or even how to pray and to read the Bible and so many other things. Students need teachers, athletes need coaches, musicians, need master musicians to show them new and young Christians need more mature Christians. And this is true in, in the passage that we're going to look at today as, as a major pattern for how the gospel was spread through the New Testament. It's by people uh, investing and, and spending time with other people and speaking about the gospel and demonstrating the gospel and inviting others into the good word and work of what Jesus has done. Open your Bibles, would you, to First Thessalonians as we continue in our series. Today we're looking at, at a pattern 
a pattern for giving the gospel. Not the only way to minister, not the only way to share the gospel, but it is a predominant pattern in the New Testament. First Thessalonians, we're going to read in, in a few minutes in chapter 2. But we find here the Apostle Paul, do you remember the story? He, he has come in a second missionary journey. He and his group uh, were going around the Mediterranean world. And on their second trip around, they, they came to the Greek city of Thessalonica. And as they stayed there for some length of time, we don't know how long it was, but they were able to see a church planted. But they also saw tremendous opposition in fact, the opposition was so strong that they had to leave the city. And there are some people who are so committed to stand against the gospel's message in that city that when Paul and his band moved down to another city, Berea, there were people there in Thessalonica that came down and continued to harass them. And they had to move on to Athens. And so we think uh, Paul probably wrote this letter. It's one of his very first letters that we have in the scripture. He probably wrote it from the city of Corinth. And what had happened is before uh, social media and things, he, he had been torn away is the way he describes it. Literally, he, he and his group had been orphaned from them. They had been totally separated. And he, he was praying for uh, the, the believers in that city, the church that had been formed. And, and he so wanted them to be strong and healthy spiritually, but he had no word. And he said, when we could stand it no longer, we finally sent somebody to go and check on you. Because the only way to get word was to have somebody literally go and watch and listen and come back and report. And Timothy, Paul says, has just now come back to us. And this letter of 1 Thessalonians is sent as a response to the report that Timothy gave about their spiritual condition. And Paul, we've looked in the last couple of weeks, was so delighted to know about how they were walking in faith and, and going along. And then he describes... He describes how their ministry to them was one where they would come and they would live among the people. Believing people, non-believing people, it didn't matter. They, they came and they made their home and, and made a living among the people. And then they would speak about the gospel. They would make it a, a, a common practice to talk about the good thing that God is, the good person He is, and the good thing He has done in Jesus. And they would make it a habit to talk often about the gospel as they were living out the implications of the gospel in their own life in front of the people that they were discussing with and sharing their very life with them. These are all indications we get through this great book. In fact, in verse 2, uh, verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. In chapter 1, here's, here's how the Apostle Paul describes it. He says, we, we came and we lived among you and, and you became imitators of us. You saw the life we lived. You saw the way we carried ourselves in our work and, and the way we were friends to one another. And we talked about the importance of Jesus and how he informs all of these relational spheres and, and how we do our life. You saw the way we lived and you saw the faith that we had and you watched and you prayed beside us. And, and all of that, I think, is consumed or understood of this idea that you became imitators of us. You began to live life in a similar fashion that we live, oriented, oriented around Jesus and what he's done in the gospel and allowing it to impact every part 
of how you do your work and how you handle your money and, and all of this. You became imitators of us. Other places, Paul would say, won't you come and imitate me as I imitate Jesus? Paul wasn't, in, in his desire wasn't to make clones of himself. It was to live such a life, imperfect as it was. We know Paul was imperfect. Of course he was. But he would say, come and imitate me because I'm doing my best to imitate Jesus. And as Christ is in me, so he will be in you. And if you begin by starting, you start your journey by imitating me, eventually you'll grow in imitating Christ. And Jesus is the centerpiece. He says, you became imitators of us, chapter 1, verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says this. First you began to imitate us, and then you became models for other people. You began to imitate us, and then you became a model for other people in what it means to love Jesus and to put Him first and to pattern your life in such a way, in the same way that Jesus does. You became imitators of us, and then you became a model for other people. Isn't that so great? This is a predominant pattern of ministry in the Scripture because we learn best when we learn from other people. We, as human beings, learn best when theory, even theological ideas, are incarnated in real life people. And we watch the way others uh, are a husband in their marriage, or a wife in their marriage, or parent their children, or take care of aging parents, or whatever the issue is. We begin to see the reality where the rubber meets the road in our theological, theoretical ideas and how they really take on flesh in the way that we actually live our lives. You became imitators of us and then you became a model for others. It is so simple. I love what he says because he didn't rejoice that, that, to the Thessalonians that you're doing everything just like I did it. That's not what he says. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, We are overjoyed because you are standing firm in the Lord. We have shown you how it's done, and now you're walking and making your life in the Lord. Not just like Paul does it, but you're standing and walking with the Lord. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. 
You are witnesses, and so is God, how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So this is what Paul is describing his ministry. He's not patting himself on the back, but what he's trying to do is point out a reminder of the the way that they live their lives among them, so that as they grow in their Christian life, they would do similarly. For Paul and his, his band of of brothers going around uh, planting these churches, giving the gospel, we see in this passage included at least three things. Number one, giving the gospel was something done genuinely. Giving the gospel was done genuinely. Did you hear all the ways that, that he describes it? He describes it as being God's truth, right? It didn't spring from error. We receive this from the scriptures itself and from our own interactions with the Lord. And then he describes their motives and, and their methods Did you hear how he described them? That their motives and methods, that that they were not impure motives. They didn't come with slippery tactics. They weren't there to try to trick people or to try to guide them into something that wasn't authentic or genuine or legitimate. They didn't use flattery to try to puff themselves up or or to try to... to, uh, just kind of uh, butter up the whole situation. They didn't use flattery or or trying to puff the other people up. Nor did they use pretense for selfish ambition, right? He says, we didn't come to you with, with some sort of mask over our actual real intentions. We didn't come to you that way. We didn't come to you seeking money. We didn't come to you because we needed something from you. We came to you because we had something to share with you. And it is the gospel, and not just the gospel, but our very lives we have come to share with you because you are so dear to us. So for Paul, and I think the pattern for us too, when we live our lives among each other in a church and in our neighborhoods and communities, is that we're to live lives that are genuine. Genuinely in love with Jesus and genuinely pursuing Him and allowing His his person to come out of us in all that we do. There's a genuine quality in giving the gospel to others. Paul also found it God-centered. Did you hear all the things where uh, uh, the presence of God and um, was at the centerpiece? He describes being with the help of God and approved by God and trying to please God. And as God is our witness, everything he did was centered around, oriented around the good person that God is and the good thing that God has done in Jesus. So it is genuine. And giving the gospel is God-centered and it's grounded in love, He describes the way that he lived among the people and ministered to them. He, he describes it in, in these words like a mother to her children or a father to his children. And, and we know that, that a good mother, there's a tenderness in her love and a genuine desire for their welfare and, and the willingness to sacrifice her own needs so that the needs of the child can be met. And Paul describes his life and ministry among them in the same way, that he loved them tenderly, like a mother loves 
her children. And he also loved them like a father with the, the strength of encouragement and, and trying to unleash the children so that they can move forward into their own future, giving them a, a encouragement and applause as they test and work with God in their own future. And so he rejoices when Timothy comes back for this report. And he says, I am so overjoyed to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. For Paul, the giving of the gospel was something that was genuinely done. It was done with God, God's person and the work he had done in Christ at the center. And it's grounded in his love for them. So the pattern started with Jesus. Jesus came into the world. God himself took on flesh that first Christmas morning. And the Bible says that that he who had always been, there never was a starting point for Jesus. He was co-eternal with God the Father. He steps into human history and he steps onto a particular plot of soil on this earth. And he comes and for about 33 years, we think, he lived his life among the people. For about three of those years, it was a very public ministry of teaching and healing and walking with the people and showing them this is how life is to be done. This is how you interact with each other. This is the kind of truth you speak to each other. This is the way you love each other, not with word, but with deed. This is the way you implore others to live a life that is worthy of the calling that I'm giving to you, Jesus says. And as Jesus lived his life, he called others to imitate him. And then as he ascended back to heaven, who now was left to be a witness on behalf of Jesus... Those who imitated Jesus now become models for their spheres of influence, their homes, and their workplaces, and their communities. It was the very first ones who imitated Jesus now become models. And as new people come into the faith, they imitate those early disciples. And as new people come in, they grow in their faith, and guess what they become? Models for other people in their life, and so forth, as it has been passed down, and the faith has been handed down. Generation after generation, and men and women, and boys and girls, we find models and examples, imperfect as we are. If you're a perfect model, won't you come and stand up here with me? And I'm going to sit down because I'm not one. I'm glad nobody's moving. (laughs) But you, brother and sister in Christ, you have had a model of Christ-likeness lived out imperfectly before you. And as you have learned to imitate that person, so that you don't become like that person, but over time you're becoming like Jesus. And in time, you then become a model for others in your life. I think that's a predominant pattern of the ministry of gospel giving that the Bible calls us to. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, it's not a mantle of burden that's placed over us. It is a mantle of responsibility. It is a mantle that Jesus himself gives to us that we would go and to make disciples. Someone has been a Jesus example for you. And I wonder who God has placed in front of you right now that he would want you to be a Jesus example before, in front of, and for him or her. It could be a child in your home or at your school. It could be a husband or your wife. It could be a co-worker, maybe a boss, and that can be a weird deal, and you got this sort of... In, you know, lack of power relationship, but maybe God has put you in that workplace so that you can be a Jesus example for your boss. Maybe maybe it's a neighbor of yours who has everything 
They've got the biggest house in Marin, and they take the greatest vacations, and uh, they got the most sickening, beautiful children, and you know what I mean? Maybe it's a neighbor who has everything. And you think, what in the world could I possibly do of any consequence for them? But God has placed you near them or in their life somehow so that you might be a Jesus example for them. What about a neighbor who has so many needs and you can count them on both hands and both feet? There are so many needs that maybe God would want you to be a Jesus example for him. You you fill in the blank. Who is it that God has placed in front of you right now? You know, our church continues to send people into our own neighborhoods to be Jesus examples. That's why we do ministries like sports camp where we can get into places like the canal and and try to minister and share the gospel. That's why we go to Davis every year to work with migrant farm workers. That's why we send people to Poland and to the Horn of Africa and Belgium and other places so that we can sense God's leading and direction and that we can be faithful people in responding back to what God has called us to be so that we can be a Jesus example for them. Father, we pray that you would allow a pattern of gospel shared sharing like this, not the only example, but a predominant one. May it be seared into our hearts and minds. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be stirring our hearts, you would be calling us into a life where we share ourselves with each other and with the world around us who is so desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus. That we would share the gospel with them in word and we would live it out in front of them in our actions. That our lives might be genuine. That our gospel giving would be Jesus-centered, of course. And that it would be grounded in love like a mother or a father to her or his children. Guide us, we pray. You're the one that needs to lead us so that we can continue to step into and grow into the church you desire us to be. May we be faithful in response. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.